Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Trauma is the biggest influencer of black mental health. We're talking about historical trauma, slavery, Jim Crow, the civil rights movement, the Tuskegee experiment, up until present day trauma. Mental health advocate Philip Roundtree in his TEDx talk pointed to the spate of police killings of unarmed black men as present day trauma. This week will mark the one-year anniversary of George Floyd, murdered by the recently convicted former Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin. And Floyd's death was followed by several high-profile acts of racism linked to trauma and measurable PTSD in communities of color. What role has the seemingly never-ending racial trauma played in the uptick of suicidal deaths among young African Americans? And why are some mental health specialists surprised the rate of suicides isn't higher? Joining me remotely, Diana Schlosser, Boston-based child family therapist. Hello, Diana. Hello there. Dr. Rita Walker, professor at the University of Houston Department of Psychology and author of The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. Hi, Dr. Walker. Hello, it's good to be here. And Joseph Feaster Jr., who lost his son to suicide and is both a council member at the Samaritans and executive committee member at the National Association of Mental Health here in Boston. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you very much, Callie. Glad to be here. So one of the things I want to get on the table, Dr. Walker, is there are many contributing factors leading to suicide. So we, 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 none of us can point to one thing, but what we're doing in this conversation is talking about the contextual impact of racial trauma. But first, can you just address the fact that there are many contributing factors, not just one, that could potentially lead to any suicide? Absolutely. I think that's an important place to start because so often we wonder what, what happened? What was the thing? What was the single thing that could have been prevented? And it's almost like we think about a car accident where there's two cars and maybe one person runs a stop sign and then that's the cause of the accident. But suicide is more like a a multi-car event where there are different scenarios, various scenarios. Maybe there was someone who, you know, was driving too fast and maybe it was late at night and they hadn't slept well and maybe the the roads were icy. Um, But then maybe there was someone who was in an automobile that was, you know, that had better safety features. And so they were better protected. And so we have to pay attention to like the risks in the circumstances, but also the protective factors, because a lot of people have the exact same experience, but come away with different, different kinds of results. So that's one of the ways that I think it's important for us to think about how complex suicide really is as we're thinking about prevention and looking forward. So why are we seeing or have been seeing um, an increase among Black youth specifically? Well, I think that we have to think about the broader, the larger context always. And for Black people, there's always been this uh, pervasive trauma, um, untreated mental health concerns and challenges and lack of access to care. 
But what has been the, the bridge or the buffer or the support has been the community and the, the level of connectedness to not just family and friends, but also uh, religious environments and, and spirituality. And that is something that has been eroded in the last year or for the past, last 14 months, that there has been that lack of access to the buffers to the stressful life situations and circumstances that have happened. So I think that's a, it's a combination of factors. You know, it's, it's the risk, the psychological risk, but also not having access to family and friends and being able to hug folks and laugh and, and talk about, you know, what's been going on in a way that has happened historically or pre, pre-pandemic. So, Diana, um, let's talk about that context of the pandemic, because as we know, the pandemic, well, as we now know, because people are talking about it and and people are coming forward to saying that they've they have suffered um, and that if they had mental health issues before, uh, they were heightened during this period of isolation. That's for everybody. Um, and then we have uh, some startling statistics from uh, the Pew Center, for example, at one in four uh, young people who considered suicide because this is just a really traumatic time. So from your perspective as a um, therapist, talk about what you were seeing with that context, how that context impacted your clients and what you were seeing. Yes, um, it definitely has impacted uh, kiddos and families across the board. I would say those protective factors that we were just talking about, we can't underestimate the impact of those um, in helping us to maintain our mental health and our mental well-being. And for a lot of kiddos who uh, on the regular are dealing with um, disparities and racism and um, the downstream effects of socioeconomic status, uh, those protective factors are huge, right? Um, And, you know, when we're thinking about uh, specific places in the community, I think one of the biggest things that has really impacted kids was school closures, right? Um, Oftentimes, school was the place where kiddos would have a soft landing spot and they would have, you know, a warm meal um, and there was hope um, in their lives because of that particular interaction with adults um, in the school environment and also their peers. Um, And so, yes, seeing that erode has significantly impacted kiddos and their families. Um, And, you know, I would say the other key piece here, too, as it relates to the uh, pandemic is this idea of this chronic uncertainty that we've all been dealing with, right? And, um, you know, I often talk with kiddos and their families about the fact that stress is a normal part of life, but also a normal part of life typically is that stress dissipates over time. Um, but that particular stress as it relates to the uh, pandemic has been chronic and just unrelenting for the last year or so. Uh, and so that on top of everything else that kids of color in particular were already facing pre-pandemic um, has really made things extremely difficult. Joseph Easter, your son died before the pandemic and, of course, long before George Floyd was murdered. But, of course, as a young Black man, he lived in the racial environment. He was 19 when you realized he was suffering some mental health issues. But I wonder if you would first tell us If you were able to recognize, I mean, you're a black man, too. So, you know, some of these elements that we're talking about with regard to racial trauma also impact you. Um, 
But were you able to recognize uh, any of that impact on your son as he was sort of struggling initially? Well, first, let me uh, thank you very much, Callie. Uh, it's almost 10 and a half years now since his passing in, um, in uh, 2010. The circumstances around Joseph, I think his was clinical. The first evidence of any issues regarding uh, Joseph's mental health occurred when he was about 19 years old, when he returned from his first year at University of Pittsburgh. And what did you see? And, and prior to that, was there anything that signaled to you that he was struggling? No, there wasn't anything that signaled it until that summer when he returned from, from college. And even there, uh, because of this view with colleges and its relationships to parents telling us that they can't disclose anything to us, there was no indication until I received a bill for extra cleaning of his room. And I inquired further and realized uh, because he first had an episode when he returned from uh, that summer uh, and realized that there must have been episodes which occurred while he was away in Pittsburgh. There was no indication at all during his high school years. Academically, he was uh, one of the marshals for his graduating class in terms of sports, social issues, played basketball. So uh, it wasn't anything there. And then after the fact, uh, what I do find is that you have a, a time period where one is in denial. He was not about to admit that he suffered from any mental illness. And I can tell you, I never really had a true diagnosis. The presumption is that he was bipolar, but never had a true diagnosis because he wasn't actually being treated by any psychiatrist or psychologist. And so, Joseph, before I return to our experts here in the conversation with us, did you feel any stigma around uh, the fact that you recognized eventually that your son had some mental health issues? No, Callie. I see no stigma because I recognize, and this is what I preach to all caregivers, is that we're dealing with a situation where uh, for so long in this society, we have not recognized that mental illness is an illness and that the brain is no different than, uh, you know, illnesses of the heart or illnesses of the liver, or illnesses of the kidney, where there is a need for treatment. So for me, there was those, no stigma. And because of that, many people, particularly in the, in, the, in the Black community, reach out to me when they are confronted with an issue of a child or a relative, a spouse, who is uh, evidencing mental illness and possible suicide tendencies because I'm very vocal about it. And so I can say to you, mental illness is an illness and suicide is one of the conditions that could occur as a result of one suffering from that illness. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Diana Schlosser, Boston-based child family therapist, Dr. Reeder Walker, professor at the University of Houston, and Joseph Feaster, Jr., mental health advocate in Boston. We're discussing racial trauma suffered by young African Americans and its link to suicide. So, Dr. Walker, back to you. You have talked about your theory about particularly middle-class Black Americans trying to cope with one of the multiple factors, as we discussed at the beginning of the this conversation, uh, that impact them 
and could put pressure leading to a potential suicide. Uh, Would you explain that, please? So I wear a few different hats. I'm a professor of psychology at University of Houston and a licensed psychologist. And so I've been doing this work for the better part of two decades, trying to understand risk and resilience related to potential suicide outcomes for Black people. And I, I have to say, you know, Joseph, I really appreciate, you know, your work and what you have tried to do, even though I know it's not an organization you necessarily desire to be a part of, that you have been trying to get the word out because I think that what happens for a lot of stay upwardly mobile um, and middle-class Black people is that there is this drive to, you know, understandably work hard and do the best you can and not show any weakness and not show any vulnerability and, you know, to tap into um, sometimes a higher power, you know, and, and recognizing that there have been many generations before the current generation, many generations who've struggled. And so, gosh, you know, do I, do I have a right to even say I'm struggling emotionally, um, especially when you are a high functioning, smart, high achieving individual, you know, it's like you just keep pressing through no matter what. And I have, in fact, through my research, looked at cultural identity and ethnic identity and the degree to which, like, the erosion of that. Because, you know, we, we want to say that we're in much more of a, um, a melting pot, you know, that, that race doesn't matter as much as it did generations ago. But I think that that connection to what it means to be African-American or African of African descent, to be a Black American, that that's been part of the protection that I think Black people are losing because of this sense of, well, things just aren't as bad. We're, we're, some say it's, it's post-racial. I know a lot of folks are realizing now we're not post-racial. Um, but we don't have to have those kinds of connections that they're not as important now. And I think that that's increased some of the vulnerability to mental health challenges and, and some instability. And is it more helpful that it appears to be beginning to be recognized in a more contextual way. By that I mean, for example, uh, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, have just declared that racism is a public health threat. Does that help people, you know, find their space in trying to understand how some of these young people could be probably more intensely impacted because of the reasons you just said? It's it's a good question. It's I think it's a good start. It's a really good start. But one of the things that I'm convinced of is that we don't really know what racism is mm-hmm. or, or what it means or, or the impact of it. And I spent two chapters in my book, The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. I dedicated two chapters to talking about the impact of racism because I think we're so conditioned to just deal with it. You know, it's like, yeah, there's, there's racism in schools and there's racism in the police force and the banking system and the work setting. Like, you name it, it's everywhere. And Black folks have just kind of dealt with it. And so because we've dealt with it, I don't think we necessarily understand the impact of it. But over time, it becomes an incredible weight and an incredible burden. And then on the other side of that is, you know, the folks who are empowered, and I'm talking about white European Americans, who are more so empowered to dismantle racism, question that it exists. Like, so, you know, was that racist? Well, that wasn't racism. Or you're being too sensitive. 
So I think we still have a really long way to go. I am glad that the CDC acknowledges it, but I think that as far as day-to-day conversations and understanding the impact and understanding how to undo racist systems, we have a really long way to go, unfortunately. Diana, was there a point when you became uh, cognizant that the rates of suicide among young African-Americans was ticking up? Yeah, I mean, in keeping up with publications and research, you know, it was it's pretty clear. But then also, I would say anecdotally, you know, as a child and family therapist and nurse, one of the things that I would notice is that kiddos who were of African-American descent who I would see often ended up being hospitalized more than their counterparts um, for things like suicidal ideation. Uh, It was coming up a lot in therapy sessions, and it was something that I was working with a lot more families of color around how to navigate than uh, the other kiddos who I was seeing. So I would say anecdotally, very much so. So recognizing that any kind of long-term, well, even somewhat short-term impact so that the real numbers uh, about, you know, how much it's gone up uh, after you have two intense events. And so I'm going to characterize the post-George Floyd set of racial incidents as one big event and the other one, the, the context of the, of the uh, coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown. Um, what would you anticipate now, based on what you've seen before we might be seeing, in terms of an increase in suicides among young African-Americans? Yeah, unfortunately, I I would say that the numbers are trending and have been trending in a direction. And I would think that um, based on the two events that you've laid out, that there would be an exponential increase if we don't put things in place to help mitigate that risk. Um, And what those things are, I think, varies. But, you know, as we're talking about suicidal risk and suicidal ideation, one of the biggest things for us clinicians is looking at what protective factors are available and in the community. And I think that, you know, leveraging the power of community relationships and the ways that people relate to one another is a great way to kind of help mitigate that, right? Uh, We have a shortage of mental health providers, and we know that access to mental health care, uh, especially in Black communities, is, is really difficult. And so, you know, I think we need to start thinking of new ways to to help leverage uh, mental health and well-being in those communities and to give the tools and resources uh, that would be helpful to make sure that that does not, in fact, happen. Uh, Joseph, understanding that people, uh, that you're out there trying to talk to people about this, that it happened to you, um, what have you seen in terms of this increase that's across the board, but particularly among African-American youth? And when you talk to people who are confused or puzzled or stigmatized, as you are not, um, what are they saying? What I find amongst people when I'm speaking to them, and I'm a reassuring sense for them because of how I approach it, being that when I'm speaking to persons, particularly those who have uh, had someone close to them who has committed suicide, uh, I've walked in their shoes. So there's a respect factor that comes into play because we understand each other. 
for those who have yet to experience a suicidal event close to them, uh, then it's a question of trying to give them, as we did recently with a program, give them the ability to see what some of the signs are. Like the question you posed to me earlier, were there any signs that I saw with regards to my son? Well, maybe there's a possibility. Unwittingly, I missed them. But now I'm more acutely in terms of one, what signs to look for. We passed that along. How to approach the the conversation in a way which is non-threatening, not only for the person possibly afflicted with mental illness, but also the caregiver. So we try to wrap ourselves around a, a very holistic approach by bringing in the clinical aspects, being in the aspects, being a non-clinician to let them know that I, I feel your pain. And these are some of the things that I employed in my dealings with a person who was either suffering with mental illness or has uh, suicidal iterations. So uh, that's how I've approached it uh, in my work. And I will continue to do my work uh, in that regard because I think it's so valuable and so important. And there are, because of the denial that I see coming from particularly the communities of color, the black and brown community, that mental illness doesn't exist. And I think that complicates the problem and certainly has been exacerbated by what has happened as far as the poignantness of racism. And certainly, I, what I call it, the George Floyd era has definitely brought this home and has, has uh, created a circumstance which I think has increased the possibilities of suicidal events going forward. So, uh, Joseph Feaster, what's the one thing you would tell in your message to Black people about suicide and about what we're seeing among young African-Americans. My word to them is, if you see something, then you need to begin to reach out as you would. Uh, the example that I always give, uh, Callie, is this, that if I were to fall down and people were there, they would be talking about, give him room, let him breathe, let's call the doctor. If I started tearing off my clothes and start running, around in a circle, they're not going, they're going to call 911, but they're not calling for the doctor, they're calling for the police officer. So our reaction to a person experiencing mental illness is going to be different. And we need to begin to educate our people uh, in that regard that that mental illness is an illness. So that's where I would start. Okay. Diana, uh, same question to you. What's the one thing that you want my listeners to understand about how to think about the rate of suicidal deaths going up among young African-Americans against the context of, of this racial trauma? I think one of the biggest things is this sense of safety. I think that is probably the biggest protective factor and probably one of the protective factors that was very much disrupted by uh, both COVID as well as witnessing some of these racial injustices and, and big events that have happened. So as much as we can uh, foster a sense of safety and security for young Black kids, I think that we can help to mitigate that increase in the suicidal ideation and risk. Same question to you, Dr. Walker. Yeah, I love everything that my fellow guests have mentioned so far. And one of the things that I always wonder about is people try to assume that if someone has considered suicide or thinking about suicide or who's died by suicide, that there's some level of, of crazy that's happened. And we have to let that go. And especially for our young people, 
that if we can take the position as grownups and as caregivers that children are resilient, but they can also be vulnerable and they need for us adults to step in sometimes and, and check in and say, you know, hey, how are you doing? You know, you don't seem like yourself today. Or for especially younger children, because we know that children as young as age uh, six and seven are dying by suicide, that we pay attention to their behavior. They may not have the language, but is there any shift in their behavior? Is there something stressful going on in their lives that we pay attention uh, we get them the support that they need, that we ask questions if they're an older child and they don't want to talk, that we let them know. I'm here to talk whenever you're ready. I just want to support you however you need to be supported. Um, and we make sure that we're there when they do ask for that help or when they do suggest that they need it. Uh, I think those are some of the main things that we can maybe start to do differently as a community. Just one more question to you, Dr. Walker. The racial trauma, as we're seeing it, is not going to go away. In fact, it's intensifying. How should we respond to that, understanding that it is one of the factors, an important factor here in uh, leading to this this increase among suicides in young African-Americans? I've been thinking about this for a while because I, I really am inclined to agree that it's it's not going anywhere. And that's why we have to be that much more invested in the community in reminding ourselves, reminding our young people what we have been through and what our strengths and talents are, and how there are so many other people trying to emulate who we are, that when we can reinforce and affirm in the community, you know, rather than internalizing racism, because that can happen a lot, you know, this idea that, well, maybe my life doesn't matter, or at least it doesn't matter in this classroom, you know, it doesn't matter to the police, that we make sure that we're not internalizing any of that, and that we instead hold tight to the idea of all the strength and all of the resilience and all of the creativity and all of the overcoming that has in fact happened in the community and we reinvest in ourselves uh, and that that can help to kind of mitigate the impact of the racial trauma and then also turn off the TV, unfortunately. Uh, the imagery that replays when we see, you know, a young man or woman or someone dying, uh, that does have vicarious effects that we need to minimize for each and every individual. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Diana Schlosser is a Boston-based child family therapist. Dr. Rita Walker is a professor at the University of Houston Department of Psychology and author of The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. And Joseph Feaster Jr., who lost his son to suicide and is both a council member at the Samaritans and executive committee member at the National Association of Mental Health here in Boston. This story is a part of a series marking the one year since the murder of George Floyd. GBH News needs your help to tell the big story of how the outrage sparked by his tragedy touched you, impacted your community, or your world. To share your story with us, visit gbhnews.org or call 617-300-2254. That's it for this week's show. Find us on the web and wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and Angela Yang, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.